Chapter Two of I Will Repay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Annie Kirkpatrick. I Will Repay by Baroness Ortsi. Chapter Two. Citizen Deputy. When presently the young girl awoke with a delicious feeling of rest and well-being, she had plenty of leisure to think. So then, this was the house. She was actually a guest, a rescued protege, beneath the roof of Citizen Desrelade. He had dragged her from the clutches of the howling mob which she had provoked. His mother had made her welcome, a sweet-faced young girl scarce out of her teens, sad-eyed and slightly deformed, had waited upon her and made her happy and comfortable. Juliette de Marny was in the house of the man whom she had sworn before her God and before her father to pursue with hatred and revenge. Ten years had gone by since then. Lying upon the sweet-scented bed which the hospitality of the Desrelades had provided for her, she seemed to see passing before her the spectres of these past ten years, the first four after her brother's death, until the old Duc de Marny's body slowly followed his soul to its grave. After that last glimmer of life beside the deathbed of his son, the old Duke had practically ceased to be. A mute, shrunken figure, he merely existed a wreck whom nature fortunately remembered at last and finally took away from the invalid chair which had been his world then came those few years at the convent of the ursulines juliet had hoped that she had a vocation her whole soul yearned for a secluded a religious life for great barriers of solemn vows and days spent in prayer and contemplation to interpose between herself and the memory of that awful night when obedient to her father's will she had made the solemn oath to avenge her brother's death she was only eighteen when she first entered the convent directly after her father's death when she felt very lonely both morally and mentally lonely and followed by the obsession of that oath she never spoke of it to any one except to her confessor and he a simple-minded man of great learning and a total lack of knowledge of the world was completely at a loss how to advise the archbishop was consulted he could grant a dispensation and release her of that most solemn vow when first this idea was suggested to her juliette was exultant her entire nature which in itself was wholesome light-hearted the very reverse of morbid rebelled against this unnatural task placed upon her young shoulders it was only religion the strange warped religion of that extraordinary age which kept her to it which forbade her breaking lightly that most unnatural oath the archbishop was a man of many duties many engagements he agreed to give this strange cause de conscience his most earnest attention he would make no promises but mademoiselle de marny was rich a munificent donation to the poor of paris or to some cause dear to the holy father himself might perhaps be more acceptable to god than the fulfilment of a compulsory vow juliet within the convent walls was waiting patiently for the archbishop's decision at the very moment when the greatest upheaval the world has ever known was beginning to shake the very foundations of france the archbishop had other things now to think about than isolated cases of conscience he forgot all about juliet probably he was busy consoling a monarch for the loss of his throne and preparing himself and his royal patron for the scaffold the convent of the ursulines was scattered during the terror Everyone remembers the Thermidor massacres, and the thirty-four nuns, all daughters of ancient families of France, who went so cheerfully to the scaffold. Juliette was one of those who escaped condemnation. How or why, she herself could not have told. She was very young, and still a postulant. She was allowed to live in retirement with Petronelle, her old nurse, who had remained faithful through all these years. 
Then the archbishop was prosecuted and imprisoned. Juliet made frantic efforts to see him, but all in vain. When he died, she looked upon her spiritual guide's death as a direct warning from God, that nothing could relieve her of her oath. She had watched the turmoils of the revolution through the attic window of her tiny apartment in Paris. Waited upon by faithful patronel, she had been forced to live on the savings of that worthy old soul, as all her property, all the Marnie estates, the dote she took with her to the covenant, everything, in fact, had been seized by the revolutionary government, self-appointed to level fortunes, as well as individuals. From that attic window she had seen beautiful Paris writhing under the pitiless lash of the demon of terror which it had provoked. She had heard the rumble of the tumbrils, dragging day after day their load of victims to the insatiable maker of this revolution of fraternity, the guillotine. She had seen the gay, light-hearted people of this star city turn to howling beasts of prey, its women changed to sexless vultures, with murderous talons implanted in everything that is noble, high, or beautiful. She was not twenty when the feeble, facilitating monarch and his imperious consort were dragged back, a pair of humiliated prisoners, to the capital from which they had tried to flee. Two years later she had heard the cries of an entire people exulting over a regicide. Then the murder of Marat, by a young girl like herself, the pale-faced, large-eyed Charlotte, who had committed a crime for the sake of a conviction. Greater than Brutus, someone had called her, greater than Joan of Arc, for it was to a mission of evil and of sin that she was called from the depths of her Breton village, and not to one of glory and triumph. Greater than Brutus. Juliet followed the trial of Charlotte Corday with all the passionate ardor of her exalted temperament. Just think what an effect it must have had upon the mind of this young girl, who for nine years, the best of her life, had also lived with the idea of a sublime mission pervading her very soul. She watched Charlotte Corday at her trial, conquering her natural repulsion for such scenes, and the crowds which usually watched them, she had forced her way into the foremost rank of the narrow gallery which overlooked the hall of the Revolutionary Tribunal. She heard the indictment heard Tinville's speech and the calling of the witnesses. "'All this is unnecessary. I killed Marat!' Juliet heard the fresh young voice ringing out clearly above the murmur of voices, the house of execration. She saw the beautiful young face, clear, calm, impassive. "'I killed Marat!' And there, in the special space allotted to the citizen deputies, sitting among those who represented the party of the moderate Gironde, was Paul Desrelaides, the man whom she had sworn to pursue with a vengeance as great, as complete, as that which guided Charlotte Corday's hand. She watched him during the trial, and wondered if he had any presentiment of the hatred which dogged him, likened to the one which had dogged Marat. He was very dark, almost worthy, a son of the South, with brown hair, free from powder, thrown back and revealing the brow of a student rather than that of a legislator. He watched Charlotte Corday earnestly, and Juliet, who watched him, saw the look of measureless pity, which softened the otherwise hard look of his close-set eyes. He made an impassioned speech for the defense, a speech which has become historic, who would have cost any other man his head. Juliet marveled at his courage. To defend Charlotte Corday was equivalent to acquiescing in the death of Marat, Marat, the friend of the people, Marat, whom his funeral orators had compared to the great, the sacred leveller of mankind. But Desrelaids' speech was not a defence, it was an appeal. The most eloquent man of that eloquent age, his words seemed to find that hidden bit of sentiment which still lurked in the hearts of those strange protagonists of hate. Everyone round Juliet listened as he spoke. 
"'It is Citoyen Deolade,' whispered the bloodthirsty Amazons, who sat knitting in the gallery. But there was no further comment. A huge, magnificently equipped hospital for sick children had been thrown open in Paris that very morning, a gift to the nation from Citoyen Deroulade. Surely he was privileged to talk a little, if it pleased him. His hospital would cover quite a good many defalcations. Even the rabid Montaigne, Danton, Merlin, Santerre shrugged their shoulders. It is Deroulade. Let him talk as he wish. Murdered Marat said of him that he was not dangerous. Juliette heard it all. The knitters round her were talking loudly. Even Charlotte was almost forgotten whilst Deroulade talked. He had a fine voice, of strong calibre, which echoed powerfully through the hall. He was rather short, but broad-shouldered and well-knit, with an expressive hand which looked slender and delicate below the fine lace ruffle. Charlotte Corday was condemned. All Deroulade's eloquence could not save her. Juliette left the court in a state of mad exultation. She was very young. The scenes she had witnessed in the past two years could not help but excite the imagination of a young girl, left entirely to her own intellectual and moral resources. What scenes! Great God! And now to wait for an opportunity! Charlotte Corday, the half-educated little provincial, should not put to shame Mademoiselle de Marny, a daughter of a hundred dukes, of those who had made France before she took to unmaking herself. But she could not formulate any definite plans. Patronel, poor old soul, her only confidant, was not of the stuff that heroines are made of. Juliet felt impelled by duty, and duty at best is not so prompt a counsellor as love or hate. Her adventure outside Deroulade's house had not been premeditated. Impulse and coincidence had worked their will with her. She had been in the habit daily, for the past month, of wandering down the Rue École de Médicine, ostensibly to gaze at Marat's dwelling, as crowds of idlers were wont to do, but really in order to look at Deroulade's house. Once or twice she saw him coming or going from home. Once she caught sight of the inner hall, and of a young girl in a dark kirtle and snow-white kerchief bidding him good-bye at his door. Another time she caught sight of him at the corner of the street, helping that same young girl over the muddy pavement. He had just met her, and she was carrying a basket of provisions. He took it from her and carried it to the house. Chivalrous, eh? And innately so, evidently, for the girl was slightly deformed, hardly a hunchback, but weak and unattractive-looking, with melancholy eyes and a pale, pinched face. It was the thought of that little act of simple chivalry, witnessed the day before, which caused Juliet to provoke the scene which, but for Deroulade's timely interference, might have ended so fatally. But she reckoned on that interference. The whole thing had occurred to her suddenly, and she had carried it through. Had not her father said to her when the time came, God would show her a means to the end. And now she was inside the house of the man who had murdered her brother and sent her sorrowing father, a poor, senseless maniac, tottering to the grave. Would God's finger point again, and show her what to do next, how best to accomplish what she had sworn to do? End of chapter 2